If you aren't a big sports fan, or if you've simply been preoccupied with other concerns, as many of us have these days, you could be excused for missing the fact that college sports is in the midst of one of the most profound periods of change, maybe ever. California's governor signed a new law today that would let college kids earn big paychecks for endorsement deals, just like the pros. UK coach John Calipari called Kentucky's name, image, and likeness legislation a model bill that other states would emulate. For more than 100 years, the distinct character of college sports has been that it's played by students who are amateurs. To me, this is one of the most significant moments in college football history. We need your help. We can't run competitive fair championships if every state has a different rule. We're now almost eight months into the new name, image, and likeness era of college sports. After almost a century of strictly enforced rules that banned student-athletes from receiving compensation beyond the value of their scholarships, athletes are now free to earn money through endorsements, hosting camps, posting on social media, modeling. One UCLA basketball player even launched his own cryptocurrency. My name is Adam Allington, and you're listening to Uncommon Law from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Over the course of the next two episodes, we're going to be focusing on name, image, and likeness, and the myriad of legal and policy implications that this new landscape presents. Kyle Janner is a reporter for Bloomberg Law. Over the past year, he's been reporting on the downstream impacts of some of these changes. So, hey, Kyle, nice to talk to you. No problem. Happy to be here. Kyle, before I get too far ahead of myself, can you just explain what name, image, and likeness means in a legal sense and what kinds of activities it encompasses? So name, image, and likeness is another uh, kind of (laughs) convoluted way of saying publicity rights, which cover a person's right to monetize their name, image, and likeness and use it commercially. That means I have the right to earn income from my own image or brand, and conversely, someone can't use my picture or name to sell a product, at least without my permission. Yeah, so there is no federal right of publicity law that is a uh, that varies by state, but most states protect it in, in one manner or another. And everyone outside of signing them away um, has name, image, and likeness, and the big deal about these new NIL rules and NCAA is that legislators and state legislators started making laws saying that you can't strip them away, whereas the NCAA in the past had forced athletes to sign away their their rights to monetize um, their name, image, and likeness as part of a preconditions for them to actually play college sports. So that's kind of where the, the big controversy sits. So I'm from Michigan and grew up during the time of the Fab Five, who are these superstar freshmen from the University of Michigan, Jimmy King, Ray Jackson, Juwan Howard, Jalen Rose, and Chris Weber. Weber with a rebound. Oh, here they go. He's looking to make the pass. He's here comes the big guy. Oh, oh, oh. He's the 12 man. He's marvelous and magnificent, Mr. Weber. Besides being just straight up ballers, the Fab Five also redefined the entire look of college hoops. They wore baggy shorts and black Nikes with black socks, which me and my friends immediately started copying. And as I'm sure you know, Kyle, 
even after these guys moved on to the NBA, it was later discovered that several members of those Michigan teams, including Weber and Rose, had violated the NCAA's amateurism rules by accepting cash from a local booster. As a consequence, all of the team's achievements were scrubbed from the record books, their coach was fired, and Michigan was banned from tournament play for two years. I mean, this was not some slap on the wrist. And while it's still not legal to just hand players money, I don't think anyone argues that had NIL been around during the era of the Fab Five, everything would have been easily sorted out and above board which is exactly what Jalen Rose pointed out on Mike Greenberg's ESPN show. So when you talk about profiting, we showed the world that they can make money off of everything, off sleeves, off elbow pads, off headbands, off of all of that stuff. So where my check? Where my royalties? Where my reparations? Talk to me. So Kyle, when did we see the pendulum start to shift? When did ideas about athlete compensation start to change? So I think the conversation kind of shifted when some lawsuits came about, such as the Ed O'Bannon case. Ed O'Bannon, of course, was a former UCLA basketball player who in 2009 brought an antitrust class action suit against the NCAA over the use of college athlete likenesses in video games. It is interesting because... Even players who were no longer subject to NCAA rules still had their image and likeness being used in these games, and they weren't getting anything out of it. So um, that ended up kind of shutting down NCAA football and some of the other video games where they were using these images and likeness. And even it turns out even if you strip the names and just use their numbers and you know characteristics that make it very clear who, <laughs> who number five for USC is, and number five for USC who happens to be faster than everybody, well, we know it's Reggie Bush. Um, more recently, there have been cases that have come before the Supreme Court and other circuit courts where the NCAA has kind of taken hits bit by bit. And, you know, the drumbeat kind of got louder and louder. It was in the O'Bannon case that a federal judge ruled that restricting athletes from receiving payment for the use of their name, image, and likeness was an unreasonable restraint on trade. So, Kyle, did this also open the door for paying athletes directly? So, um... The name, image, and likeness issue is kind of separate from the pay-for-play issue in that the pay-for-play issue is, you know, the NCAA decides that our institutions aren't going to pay players, and here's the limits of what your institution can do for a player. Name, image, and likeness kind of steps on a player's rights that exist completely independent of the university. So that kind of became the easiest target, I think, for people who thought that the NCAA athletes and particularly with the ones with revenue sports, were getting a raw deal because it was just a business wants to pay a college player to be in a commercial. And why does it hurt the NCAA to allow that? So the NCAA fought long and hard to keep that amateur status where they couldn't profit off of their you know athletic abilities. But eventually, the way the public opinion started kind of turning on that and as they saw how... <laughs> Everyone involved in college sports, where coaches are the, the highest paid public employees of most states, um, and you know, athletic directors getting six figure salaries, bowl directors getting quarter of a million or more just to glad hand and set up bowl games. Um, and people looked at the players who were actually providing the entertainment as being completely barred from sharing any of it as 
somewhat unfair and the easiest to target, I think, was saying, hey, well, maybe if you just stopped barring them from doing their own side deals. In addition to the O'Bannon suit, there was also the case of NCAA versus Alston, which was a district court ruling that was later appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, which heard testimony on March 31st of last year. We will hear argument this morning in case 2512, National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Alston and the consolidated case. Mr. Waxman. When Seth Waxman, the attorney for the NCAA and former solicitor general under the Clinton administration, stood up to give his opening remarks, I just want to underscore that the argument he was making was one that had already been accepted as gospel for generations. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For more than 100 years, the distinct character of college sports has been that it's played by students who are amateurs, which is to say that they are not paid for their play. Maintaining that distinct character is both pro-competitive, because it differentiates the NCAA's product from professional sports, and can be achieved only through agreement. Whatever their labels, these new allowances are akin to professional salaries especially given the truly unique history here, a rule that is reasonably designed to preserve amateurism as the NCAA has defined it should be upheld. It quickly became apparent, however, that this Supreme Court was more than willing to entertain the idea that the amateurism provision at the heart of college sports was maybe just a bit illegal. This is Justice Kagan. Mr. Waxman, the way you talk about amateurism, it it sounds awfully high-minded, but there's another way to think about what's going on here, and that's that uh, schools that are naturally competitors as to athletes have all gotten together in an organization, an organization that has undisputed market power, and they use that power to fix athletic salaries at extremely low levels. And it wasn't just Justice Kagan who was hung up on this question of price fixing. Tim Nevius is an attorney who was part of the original team that brought the Alston case. Tim, it says here on your law firm bio that one of your first jobs out of law school was working as an NCAA investigator. I'm assuming that a big part of that job was enforcing the NCAA's rules on amateurism, right? Exactly. It's amateurism violations, eligibility violations, recruiting violations, and uh, runs the gamut across the NCAA manual. After I left the NCAA, I effectively switched sides and started fighting for the athletes when I joined the law firm of Winston and Strawn in New York and helped initiate and for two years helped lead what became the Alston litigation. So in NCAA versus Alston, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that limits the NCAA placed on academic-related benefits, things like scholarships, computers, paid internships, that placing limits on these benefits was a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. But one thing the case didn't address was NIL. So, Tim, can you connect the dots for me here? How did this case factor into the changes that came later? It's a common misperception that the Alston litigation is related to name, image, and likeness, but in fact, it's related to compensation within the system. And so there's two buckets there. One is 
compensation from the schools within the system to the players for their performance. And the other is with name, image, and likeness, compensation outside the system from third parties who are interested in providing uh, compensation for marketing purposes and licensing and, and things of that nature. The significance of the Alston case was that the Supreme Court unanimously decided that the NCAA's long-held defense of amateurism was, was invalid. And that left the NCAA without the ability to set rules related to compensation in a variety of ways, including with respect to name, image, and likeness. So even though the decision didn't speak directly to name, image, and likeness, the effect of it was that if the NCAA wanted to impose additional restrictions, they were left with very shaky legal grounds. It was also during the Alston case that we saw this domino effect of states passing their own NIL legislation. California was the first, followed by others, including Florida, Georgia, and Texas. In fact, as of the time we're recording this podcast, there are 28 states with NIL laws already in place and multiple others that are actively pursuing legislation. So, Tim, following the defeat in Alston and now faced with the possibility of some states allowing NIL and others not, it seems like the NCAA was really in a tough spot. Exactly. On July 30th, of 2021, the NCAA effectively implemented temporary guidelines that deferred to state law and school policy in states where uh, there weren't state laws on the books. So the NCAA really couldn't do anything unless they wanted to invite more legal scrutiny that perhaps would immediately change the entire system. And that's not to say this didn't change the system. It did in a big way, but they still preserved, at least for the time being, the concept of pay-for-play or amateurism that is is still in effect. You can't pay the players to participate in their sport as of right now. There are some clauses and slight differences, but generally speaking, most of these state bills have similar characteristics. Things like schools can't withhold scholarships or eligibility from athletes who exercise their NIL rights. They also can't put a cap on NIL compensation. But there are also rules that apply to the NIL deals themselves, such as schools can restrict certain kinds of NIL activities around things like tobacco or gambling. NIL agreements also can't conflict with existing team contracts. And perhaps most importantly, NIL agreements can't be used as recruiting inducements. But the thing that I just keep coming back to, Tim, is that wouldn't it just be super easy for a smart person to get around these rules? I mean, isn't this just basically pay for play, but we're calling it NIL? A brief case in point, uh, just a few months back, we saw Charlie Batch, who is a former NFL quarterback who's now operating as a kind of professional booster for his alma mater, Eastern Michigan University. And Batch goes on Twitter and fires off this tweet offering Caleb Williams, who's this hotshot quarterback from Oklahoma, a $1 million NIL package if he were to transfer to Eastern. I mean, that was literally the tweet, which seems like a violation of both the rules and the laws. Well, in that particular scenario, I was well aware of it. Caleb is one of my clients, actually, and um, 
And so it was obviously national news when he left Oklahoma to enter the transfer portal. And, and we expected that people might, you know, make these types of public announcements to try to get some attention. But to your question related to, is that the new way? There's still restrictions in place that prevent schools and other individuals, even if they're not directly related to the school, from offering inducements on a recruiting basis or on a pay-for-play basis, meaning for your participation in athletics. Nevertheless, the rules are subject to change, and I think we will see further I think lessening of those rules and they're going to be less restrictive moving forward. And eventually, yes, you might see that um, someone can bid on the services of a player and it may be permitted. In an odd twist, following the NCAA's rule change last year, some of the states with NIL laws suddenly found themselves operating under more restrictions than states without laws. For instance, Florida's bill currently prohibits colleges from facilitating NIL deals for athletes, a practice not expressly prohibited under the NCAA's interim policy. Likewise, in Connecticut and South Carolina, athletes are prohibited from using team colors, logos, or other institutional marks. Iowa's bill actually caps the number of hours per week that students can participate in athletic activities. So it's small differences like these that can actually lead to significant recruiting advantages, which has prompted some to call on Congress to pass a national NIL law. We need your help. We can't run competitive fair championships if every state has a different rule. This is Mark Few. He's the coach of the Gonzaga men's basketball team. Few testified before Congress last summer where he urged lawmakers to adopt a federal policy to govern NIL. All athletes deserve to use their own name, image, and likeness in commercial endorsements and on social media. And I am very much in favor of them profiting as much as they possibly can from this. We don't need an artificial cap on what a player's value is for NIL. We should rely on fair market value. But we do need some parameters to preserve the collegiate model and protect the recruiting environment. Without these parameters, the unintended consequences could be disastrous. And they could be disastrous, especially for the non-revenue sports outside of football and men's basketball. So, Tim, what do you think? Does Coach Few have a point when you factor in the recent creation of the NCAA transfer portal, which makes it easier for athletes to transfer to new schools without losing eligibility? If you combine that with NIL, could that widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots in college sports? Or, I don't know, maybe it gives underdog programs a pathway to attract top talent that they didn't have before. Well, to start, I would say we've never had competitive balance in the recruiting space or in college sports in general. The top programs have always been the top programs with very few exceptions. That continues to be the case today. I think with NIL, it's possible that it could start to shift that a bit, but there's a lot to play out in that respect. And I, I, I think to dispel you know, this notion that there's ever been a competitive balance is necessary because there's the top programs have always been the top programs. What about some kind of federal legislation? Even if it doesn't level the playing field per se, 
Would that still be a better option over the NCAA's interim guidelines? I, I think that there's probably more momentum in that direction than we've seen, although it's still an uphill battle to get Congress to agree on what the language should be in a bill like that. Certainly, there are differences among states, and there are differences in states that don't have state laws because they're following an NCAA policy that effectively says, do what you want, so long as you're not recruiting people on the basis of NIL or a pay-for-play situation. So I think there's going to be a lot more conversation at the federal level to advance legislation, and there's already states that are starting to repeal their legislation in order to have the least restrictive uh, legislation that applies to the athletes and the schools in their states. Tim Nevius is a sports lawyer and former NCAA investigator. Tim, it was great talking to you. You're welcome, Adam. We're headed in the right direction. There's more momentum in favor of the athletes than ever, but there's a lot of work left to do. And I think we're going to continue to see that play out over the next few years. According to industry analysts, NIL could mature into a billion-dollar-a-year market by the end of this year. One of the early darlings of the NIL era was UConn women's basketball star Paige Beckers. I won National Gatorade Player of the Year in high school, and that's when our relationship kind of started. And now to be an actual Gatorade athlete, it's, it's surreal to me, it's amazing to me, it's such a blessing, and I can't wait to get started. In addition to Gatorade, Becker's NIL portfolio also includes deals with Cash App and the online marketplace StockX. Likewise, Texas Longhorns QB Quinn Ewers struck a deal worth $1.4 million over three years to provide autographs for GT Sports Marketing. I've seen simple trading card deals where the athlete is signing cards and getting compensated for that. I've done uh, bobblehead deals appearance fees for just like showing up at a car dealership or restaurant or something like that. And of course, some folks are going into the trademark market. David McGriff operates a solo practice based out of California, where he represents clients in the entertainment and sports industries. David, it's obvious that NIL is translating into big money for college athletes. But are we seeing these deals only going to the star football and basketball players what about less visible sports like, I don't know, uh, wrestling or track? So that was the fear at first. You know, it's only going to be the quarterbacks at Alabama and Ohio State and, you know, premier football colleges, maybe a few basketball players for some of the powerhouse basketball teams, you know, the Dukes, the Kentuckys. But that's it. Well, that's been absolutely proven to be untrue. Not only are opportunities coming from every conference in D1. There's opportunities even in the in D2 and D3. Also, it's not just basketball and football. It's tennis, it's volleyball, it's swimming, it's water polo. Those deals are all over, and it's opening up opportunities for all sorts of athletes. According to Open Doors, a digital platform for connecting athletes and brands, data through the end of February shows men's football accounting for half of all NIL compensation, followed by women's basketball at 18.5% and men's basketball at 15 before dropping down to women's swimming and volleyball, each with 2.4%. And we should point out that Division Two and three athletes are also part of the mix, Jake Brind is a tennis player at Simpson College, a small Division III school in Iowa. Brind went a little bit viral recently for a video he posted on Twitter. In Division III, 
We don't get athletic scholarships, but thanks to name, image, likeness, I can make money off the brand brand. Maybe now I won't have to work four jobs. I'm going to auction off items to the Jake Brand tennis experience. These are game-worn shoes. Again, according to Open Doors, the average NIL compensation per Division I athlete came to $561. That's compared to $57 for Division II and just $35 for Division Three. So obviously it's not a lot of money, but David... Even if it just means that athletes don't have to look over their shoulder for accepting a free meal or T-shirt, that in itself is something, right? Or is there another part to consider? So, you know, college sports is a very regional component to it. And so just because, you know, I, I grew up in L.A. and I'm familiar with the, the universities out here in Los Angeles, you know, the USC, UCLA, Pepperdine, but also there are pockets of this country that are really focused on their local college and they go to all the games throughout all the sports and they're really committed to following that particular college and so therefore the athletes in that region have some sort of stature and they can capitalize on that and they haven't been able to in the past and they can now and I think that's a great thing. David, I think that one of the underappreciated aspects of these new NIL laws is that Unlike years past, college athletes can now hire agents and attorneys and other representatives to help them maximize their opportunities. Could you just talk a little bit about that and the impact that's having? Well, these athletes should definitely have someone advising them, one, just so they don't run afoul of any compliance issues with their university or NCAA or any state laws, Um, but also just to make sure that they're monetizing these opportunities in the correct way. They're not giving up too much of their rights. They're not giving all the rights to one person. They're not giving the rights to someone who can't even exploit them. You don't want to give your, you know, beverage branding rights to a shoe company and vice versa, right? So those things things seem like simple common sense matters, but it's not common sense to, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old person who wasn't really that versed in contracts and, you know, they get overwhelmed. So it's it's important to have some sort of guidance on that. David, one thing we haven't brought up that relates quite directly to name, image, and likeness is what's happening right now with NFTs, or non-fungible tokens as they're called. So these are digital collectibles uh, that have a kind of unique identifying code, which means that they can't be copied. People often buy and sell them with crypto, and it gets kind of confusing pretty quickly. But to simplify things in my head, I just tend to think of them like digital baseball cards. But the key takeaway here is that lots of people collect them, some of which are worth many thousands of dollars. So is this something that college athletes are getting involved with as well? Absolutely. I think NFTs are going to be huge in in sports. I've had some opportunity to represent folks that are looking at those deals. Um, The numbers that are projected are astronomical. And it dovetails right into name, image, and likeness because a lot of the NFTs are basically that. They're the athlete's likeness, whether it's them now playing sports for the university, or even I've uh, been involved in deals where people are reaching back to high school days. And so they're creating NFTs using images that they acquired a few years ago and bringing it to the present and launching NFTs based on that. So there's all kinds of of ways that's going to get exploited. Again, I think we're just scratching the surface on that too. 
one of the things I've been diligent on is making sure that my clients are not granting rights that would include NFTs without negotiating specifically for the NFT. So I always carve those out of contracts that I'm negotiating. David McGriff is a sports and entertainment attorney based in Los Angeles. David, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. The NCAA announced in February a review of current NIL policies. The Division I Board of Directors has asked for a report on how NIL changes have affected athletes' school choice, transfer opportunities, academics, and their mental health. A preliminary report from the council is expected in April. So, Kyle Janner, as groundbreaking as NIL has been thus far, there are some who still say that NIL is just a step toward college sports eventually becoming a completely free and open market. There's also this idea of making college athletes employees of the schools they play for. In fact, there's a bill in Congress that would do just that as well as give athletes the right to collective bargaining. So how likely are these two scenarios in your mind, college sports either becoming a completely free and open market or making athletes employees? I think they're, well, they're such separate issues. One is compensation for the work and the other is being paid for the right to use your image. So they're kind of two separate jobs in a sense. Um, Just the one job is the source of the value of the other but they're you know, completely separate avenues economically. If you license pay for play, first of all, that money comes out of the school and out of the athletic department. So that, that would fundamentally alter the college sports landscape, um, whether you think it's uh, as a matter of principle, they should do it just because there's so much money pouring into some of these big programs or not, it's gonna really tax some of the non-revenue sports also potentially bringing Title IX implications if you're paying, you know, athletes of the the big revenue sports, which are primarily men's football and basketball, but also can include women's basketball to some extent. Um, it's still very male-heavy situation that could, again, if if pay was unequal, invoke Title IX questions. Huh. So aside from costing the universities a lot of money and making them fundamentally alter their athletic departments to deal with a huge new budget item. Any other potential snags you see on the athlete-employee issue? Um, it could cripple coaches' pay, possibly. It still wouldn't really address the problems with NIL, um, number one, because they're not likely to be able to pay the players what some of these new endorsement deals are making and, and stay competitive. And on top of that, you'd still be limiting a right that these players had been denied in the past, have now gotten back. Um, And it's a right that, like I said, everybody has. Um, It's just that they used to be forced to sign it away. And if you wanted to get them to sign it away again, I think that's politically a tough genie to put back in the bottle. And again, number two, it doesn't really, it still leaves at least the top end athletes um, and brands uh, a little bit short shrifted if they're told, hey, let's get back your NALs, here's here's a paycheck, um, and you're fine now. It's like, well, you didn't really make me whole. And that is where we're going to leave the issue for now. This is the first in a two-part series we're doing on the legal and policy questions surrounding recent changes to the NCAA's long-held amateurism rule. 
In our next episode, we'll discuss other cases that could play a role in whether college sports is heading toward becoming a completely free market and what implications that might have on things like competitive balance. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Josh Block, the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Special thanks also to Greg Henderson for editorial support. Music for this episode was composed by Poddington Bear. And of course, thanks also to you for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.